0: Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where every week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. In November of 1983, the year I was born, President Ronald Reagan signed a law designating the third Monday in January a federal holiday to commemorate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Every year, people of all races memorialize the Reverend's memory and legacy with quotes and memes and a day off. But the truth is that many Americans, Americans of all races, cultures, and socioeconomic backgrounds, don't know very much about civil rights or Black history.
1: I came up in an era. What I learned about African-American history was that there were faceless people picking cotton, and somehow that happened, but it was nobody's fault. And then it ended, and then then there was a fight for civil rights, and then that ended, and now everything's great. That's the story that that I got in history class, and that left me with all kinds of You know, it leaves you sort of feeling like, why are things the way they are today? Who am I in all of this? What is my relationship to what's going on around me? It seems like there isn't one, right? So understanding that I come from this lineage and this whole series of important events that came before me led to my life, that is a totally different psychological and spiritual experience. It was important for me to feel that way in order to be able to move forward in life.
0: That was Channing Gerard-Joseph, an award-winning journalist whose byline has appeared around the globe. Channing is a proud descendant of the enslaved people who built America and gave it soul. Over the next three weeks, we're going to move beyond the typical American history lesson— Beyond depictions of nameless, faceless people who were brought to this country in slave ships, huddled together in their own filth, while many of their fellow shipmates, also stolen from their homelands, died and decomposed beside them. And we're going to explore the enduring impacts of slavery and segregation, as well as current attempts to suppress and subjugate Black people in America. Our story won't end there, though. In the final week of this three-part episode series, I'll be sharing stories that amplify black culture, expression, and joy. There is black pain, absolutely. And there is also black power. And my hope is to present a broader perspective that inspires you, whoever you are, to engage with the past in ways that enable personal and societal healing. When it comes to black history in America, we have to start with slavery.
2: Slavery isn't one thing and varies very much from culture to culture. And there are many, many, not necessarily ulterior, but there are many different motivations, impetuses for enslaving other people. So there's no simple or streamlined sort of explanation for the phenomenon.
0: That was Don Wyatt, John M. McCardle Jr., Distinguished Professor at Middlebury College. You may recognize Don's voice from Episode 3 of Season 1 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. That episode was entitled Asian Studies, an examination of how the model minority myth has contributed to the virus of hate afflicting Asians in America. An expert in Asian studies with a primary concentration in China, Don is currently working on a history of foreign slaves in imperial China. For this episode, though, I wanted to speak with him not about his professional interests, but about his personal experiences.
2: So I grew up 300 miles from Chicago. It's an interesting place. It's called Alton, Illinois, and it is the first town across the Mississippi River. It's the first town in Illinois across from St. Louis, Missouri.
0: So tell me about like, what was the demographic for growing up, what was it?
2: The town itself was highly reflective of the country at large. In fact, we had a probably a larger than average minority black population. And I would almost argue it was something like, you know, this is hazy, but, and it's very approximate, but I imagine it's something like 70, 30. And another town nearby called East St. Louis, because it's in the Illinois side, had a reputation for essentially it was the, it was the black city. Very mixed bag. And then you've got this whole interplay between, States like Illinois and neighboring Missouri are still playing out the legacy of the Civil War. And they're border states. In other words, Illinois was Union and Missouri was Confederate. So the dividing line was very stark. These were states that were once at war with each other. So it's perpetuated this kind of division between the areas. And Alton, in particular, is part of the Underground Railroad. So you can take tours even now, homes with false basements, false walls, and so forth, where slaves used to hide, essentially, after crossing the Mississippi River and getting into Illinois and heading for places further north. It wasn't that wise to hang out say in Alton if you were that close to Missouri. That's a lot of my my history, my legacy. Alton is is noteworthy also because in more recent history, I've been reflecting on it lately because it's we've now gotten to the 50 year mark, but Martin Luther King Jr. was of course assassinated by a man named James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray was born in Alton.
0: Don told me that growing up in a space rife with racial tension was part of what led him to want to leave Alton for an academic trajectory that would afford him greater freedom and opportunity. He told me that his mother, whose dreams for herself had been restricted due to racism, encouraged him to aspire to and achieve great things. Likewise, Channing spoke about how he draws daily inspiration from his family those he grew up knowing, and those who died long before he was born.
1: There were lots of stories passed on to me because I, generationally, I was born when my my mother was very young and her grandparents were still around, so my great-grandparents were still around. So I was able to, until my early 20s, spend time with several of my great-grandparents and ask them to tell me stories from, you know, the Great Depression and and civil rights and and that sort of thing. So I do have those kinds of things. And and when I was a student at Oberlin College, I did a lot of theater and, and I worked with a professor who was really interested in doing African American theater. And a lot of that raised questions for me about my relationship with African American culture and, and history. And I realized in, in that whole thing that that I didn't know very much. And I would go back and ask my family questions, and they would tell me those stories that I mentioned about lynchings in town and stories of old New Orleans and the KKK and and things like that. But there were a lot of questions they didn't know the answers to, like, what was the name of your grandfather or grandmother? or Where did she come from? And so I was unsatisfied, and I, and, um, I just decided to do what I could to try and trace my roots. And in that process, I... We covered a lot of interesting stories, and one of the stories involved an ancestor of mine who I just kept finding his name over and over again in in slavery records. And I, you know, in the beginning, I thought this is really interesting that an ancestor of mine is purchasing slaves, <laughs> and I didn't know how to interpret that. And eventually, after digging through all of the sorting through all of the all of the records, it became clear that the reason he's purchasing slaves is because these slaves is because they are his children. And uh, eventually found a record of, of this auction where this ancestor Narcisse is the only black man present at an auction of an estate of one of his white neighbors. And the estate contains cows and horses and, and uh, furniture and, and um, enslaved men and women and children. And so among those were his sons and, and when I put that together, it was just so moving. And it made me feel this deep connection to not only African-American history, but the struggle to build America and make it what it is. And, and obviously we still, we still see that struggle is going on now.
0: As a reminder of his roots on his bookshelf, Channing displays a record from that 1843 auction at which his fifth great-grandfather purchased the freedom of his three sons.
1: I felt this great sense of pride that my ancestors who faced this enormous challenge you know, were able to somehow maintain their love for one another and their commitment to family and to save money in an era where it was very difficult to be a free black person and to make to make money to get by at all let alone to save let alone to save enough to strategically be in a position to to make sure your children were free and that's something so beautiful and so inspiring that you know how can i complain about what whatever challenges that i face knowing that that's what keeps me going thinking about what they've been through and knowing that what i face daily is Nothing compared to that.
0: Those who survived slavery, who found enough inner resilience, love, and hope to press on, did what they could to preserve not only family but culture. Master drummer and percussionist Baba Doc, who passed away not too long after our interview, and who will be deeply missed told me about how our African ancestors fought to retain drum culture despite America's attempts to eradicate it.
3: When enslaved Africans were taken from different places on the west coast of Africa, people who were taken from western Nigeria, they called it Yoruba land, were taken to Cuba, Trinidad, United States, boom, boom, boom. But the ones who were taken to Cuba were enslaved by the Spanish. And the Spanish were not as harsh as the English because Cuba Cuba's a small island. And so the Spanish would bring enslaved Africans who came from the same region or the same tribe. And so certain information was retained, certain things as best they could under the circumstances. Whereas in the United States, colonized or enslaved by the English, they had another kind of outlook on slavery and Africans, this whole thing of three-fifths of a man and an animal and all this whole craziness, you know, and the separation of families and people. So in terms of culture, drum culture, there was not a lot retained in America, but it, certain rhythms were retained and developed. And there are more people here now in America who are worshipers of the Yoruba religion and culture and have maintained all this drum information and culture. But for African Americans, the drum was banned. It wasn't that popular before, but the drum was banned after the Nat Turner Rebellion because Nat Turner told the enslaved Africans, when you hear the drum, that's your signal to rise up. And so when the people heard the drum at some of these plantations, they rose up and they fought back and they killed a lot of white folks. And eventually that drummer, that turn of rebellion, they eventually squashed it. After that, they banned the drum because the enslaver felt that there's a language in the drum, and the language is what told these people to rise up and revolt. So we could not have the drum anywhere near these enslaved Africans, because it could happen again. They actually scared white folks. And Nat Turner Rebellion is the most famous one that we hear of, but there were other rebellions. It wasn't That wasn't the only one. And they probably used the drum to signal people. So, from, let's say, 1860 to the 1930s, the drum was banned. If you got caught as a drummer playing the drum, you could have your hands cut off, or you could be hung and killed. You know, that's how afraid the white man was of the drum. He felt that there was a language in the drum. And he was right about that. There is a language. so. African-Americans still continued to play the drum, even though the white man said, I'm gonna cut your hands off or I'm gonna gonna hang you. They still found a way for the drum to survive. And most people don't realize there's a drum culture in America. Most people don't know our story. And the fact that an instrument was at one time banned, we still found a way to persevere and, and work around that. And the drum remained alive. The white man was not able to destroy it completely, you know.
0: I'll read a few excerpts from Article 36 of the Slave Code of South Carolina. And because I'll read it as written, I'll warn you that the language as well as the content may be upsetting. So here's what it says. It is absolutely necessary to the safety of this province that all due care be taken to restrain the wanderings and meetings of Negroes and other slaves at all times, and more especially on Saturday nights, Sundays, and other holidays, and their using and carrying wooden swords and other mischievous and dangerous weapons, or using and keeping of drums, horns, or other loud instruments, which may call together or give sign or notice to one another of their wicked designs and purposes, and that all masters, overseers, and others may be enjoined diligently and carefully to prevent the same." And whatsoever master, owner, or overseer shall permit or suffer his or their Negro or other slave or slaves at any time hereafter to beat drums, blow horns, or use any other loud instruments, or whosoever shall suffer and countenance any public meeting or feastings of strange Negroes or slaves in their plantations shall forfeit ten pounds current money— For every such offense upon conviction or proof as aforesaid, provided an information or other suit be commenced within one month after forfeiture thereof for the same. So that's what it said. And rather than focusing on the brutality of white supremacy, I'd like to focus on how incredible it was that enslaved Africans held on to the culture and language of the drum, then shared it with future generations so that language wouldn't be lost. That's something else that doesn't come across in the disembodied, sanitized version of history. The ingenuity and potentiality and diversity of Black experiences throughout American history, including queer Black history in America.
1: Prior to the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, in 1862, in Washington, D.C., Lincoln declared that Washington would be a safe space for enslaved people, essentially. So if you if you made it to Washington, you'd be free and with the protection of federal troops. And so tons of Black people swarmed to the Capitol to claim their freedom. And Washington developed this reputation as a place where exciting things can happen and possibilities exist, right? And post-war, when you realize something that had oppressed you your whole life, slavery, the institution of slavery, suddenly comes to an end. You start wondering, oh my God, what other cool things might happen in life, right? There was a moment where we were really excited about exploring the possibility of freedom. We're running for office, we're getting elected. We were getting education, some of us, if we were lucky. We were taking on leadership roles, we were activists. And so life seemed full of possibilities in a way that it hadn't for a very long time. Black people. Including Black queer people, right? So in Washington, D.C., in this context of a relatively big city, capital city, a center of power in America, where there are people who are excited to explore their freedom, who never before had the opportunity on the plantation, suddenly you think, oh, there are people who are experiencing the same emotions, attractions, and questions about their identity that I'm experiencing. So, you know, if you can imagine, experiencing all that hardship, getting to Washington, meeting people who we would now identify as queer, and that's exciting. And the first thought that they had at a time prior to social media, prior to radio, prior to television, how do we have a good time? We get together and have a party. They love to do masquerades. We get together and get dressed up. with my, oh, With all my new queer friends,
4: For us to fight it, to realize that we all are one. Make unity and inner peace the only reason
0: The more we engage with the past in meaningful, personal ways, the more we can see ourselves reflected in it.
1: My obsession with my family history and genealogy led me to wondering, where would I fit on this family tree that I'm building? As a queer person, where would I go? Where would the other queer people in history go? Because of family trees, really a record of heterosexual behavior.
0: In the course of his research, Channing happened upon the story of William Dorsey Swann, a man born into slavery who became the world's first self-described drag queen. And in his forthcoming book, The House of Swan, which has been described as RuPaul's Drag Race Meets Hidden Figures, Channing describes Swan's power to affect culture change within the Black queer community.
1: William Dorsey Swan is a person that initially was a mysterious figure to me that I was interested in learning more about, who became a person who was a great inspiration to me when I learned more about what he faced and the life he lived and how much of an unknown impact he has had on our culture in terms of early drag and early queer activism and the format of the ball community with a mother figure, in a position of mentorship and support and guidance for younger queer people. SWAN was organizing and hosting events that featured beauty and dance contests that were rooted in the culture of enslaved African-Americans with dances like the Cakewalk, which were essentially dance competitions very similar to voguing. So I point all that out to say that I think SWAN is a really interesting person and I think people will (laughs) love to learn about SWAN. And he's a great vehicle through which to tell the story of early queer, you know, America, to tell the story of Black queer people and our ancestors, to to showcase the fact that we've always been here and we've always been doing stuff and always finding a way to, to survive and find joy in life.
0: Survival through struggle is part of the fabric of Black resilience. And so is love, joy, and a willingness to sacrifice for others.
1: This is Martin Luther King Day that we're taping, right? That's a big sacrifice to give your life for your people and for their freedom. And I think I'm not interested in giving my life in that way, right? But I am interested in in devoting my life to the life, the time that I have on earth to doing something that I think is additive that no one else can do, no one else has wanted to do, to provide actual real information, true information, about the lives of marginalized and excluded people, information that inspires and sticks with us and makes us feel like there are more possibilities in life and gives us joy and in in some way approaching the joy that Swan and his new friends felt uh, in the days after the end of slavery.
0: After the 13th Amendment ended slavery in 1865, Many formerly enslaved African-Americans felt a newfound sense of freedom and possibility. After the brutalities and indignities of slave life, such as the selling and forcible relocation of family members, regular sexual assaults, denials of legal marriage, home ownership, wages, education, and more, there was a sense of expansion and opportunity. And yet most Black Americans lived in desperate poverty— And African Americans still weren't considered citizens for another three years, and black men weren't allowed to vote for five years after slavery was made illegal. And then there was segregation. Although by the 20th century it was no longer legally enforced north of the Mason-Dixon line, racial segregation was enforced through other means and mechanisms. Here is Walter Johnson, a former computer programmer, systems engineer, and technical instructor who spent two years serving in the United States Army. In 1962, Walter became a computer programmer for the city of Philadelphia, and in 1966, he was hired by IBM as the first black systems engineer in the banking marketing office. Walter is also Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James's uncle.
4: Communities in Philadelphia pretty much were divided by where you lived. Basically, I understand that mortgages were redlined, and if you were Black, you could only get a mortgage in certain places. And so there was no legal segregation, but nevertheless, there was segregation.
0: When Zach and I interviewed him for this episode, Walter spoke about how his experiences in Philadelphia compared to his time in the Army, during which he was stationed in Virginia.
4: Here's what it was like in Philly. So we weren't segregated per se, but we were definitely separated because things like restaurants you couldn't go to, they wouldn't serve you, or they would tell you they were full or whatever. Even in 1956, when I was a senior at Temple, you could not go to just any restaurant. There was one restaurant in Center City that you could go to and know you were going to get served. There was also the McDonald's of its day was Horn and Hardard's, And I don't know if you've ever heard of Horn and Hardard's, but Horn and Hardard's was a restaurant that had three different levels. There was what they called the automat, where you could go in and put in a nickel in, in a slot and get uh, coffee, or you could get a sandwich for 15 cents which not much of a sandwich compared to today's sandwiches. But nevertheless, instead of a McDonald's hamburger for a dollar, you could get a bologna sandwich for 15 cents. And that was at, usually at the basement level. And you really didn't deal with anybody. You put your nickel or your quarter in, in the slot and you got you got your food. And you could go there. And then on the ground level, and at 16th and Market, where Liberty Place is now, there was a Hornet Hardups, 16th and Chestnut. Uh, there was a, a Hornet Hardups. So on the basement level, there was the automat. On the first floor, there was a cafeteria, and you would go through the line with your tray and get whatever food you wanted, and you could go there. The second floor had a restaurant with waitress service, and you could go in, but they would ignore you.
0: In Philadelphia, Walter experienced both racial separation and cross-racial, interracial interaction.
4: I can remember being part of an organization called Fellowship House in high school, and the the white kids would go into Hornet Hardest on the second floor order lots of food, and then they would wave at the window and the Black kids would go in and join them and the waitress would never come back. So we would eat for nothing and we would just leave after, after a while.
0: Virginia was different.
4: The law basically was that any owner of a business could refuse admission to anybody. So there was a pizza place in a little town called Phoebus, which was on the peninsula below Hampton, that wouldn't let Black people into the pizza place. You couldn't even come in the front door. You had to go through an alley, round to the back, and it was a window, and you could order pizza. And it was the best pizza place in town. And admittedly, the pizza was better. There was also a Black nightclub out in the woods that had jazz on Friday and Saturday nights. And it was Black-owned, and the owner would let white people in, but only if they were with somebody Black. And the county was a dry county, meaning that they couldn't sell liquor by the glass at a club, but you could take your own bottle and they would serve it to you and they would charge you for the ice and the mixers. So we would go there and and I was in a band. I was in an army band after I got out of basic training. So the band members would go to this nightclub to listen to the jazz and the white guys would go with, with the black guys. And there was a few guys I would go with and they would get in because I was with them. And uh, one night coming back from the uh, now I have to add that I had a bottle of old granddad bourbon that stayed at the bar. It had my name on it with a sticker that specialist Walter Johnson's bottle of old granddad. One night coming back from the club, the guys wanted to get some pizza before we went back to the post. And the pizza guy wouldn't let us in the front door. He would let me in the front door. The white guy. He said, well, we'll get pizza for you. And I said, no, this guy doesn't want us to go in the front door, then we don't buy pizza here. We get pizza from the other place. And they said, no, 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 it's not as good. I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm not going to patronize these guys. No, but we want to get pizza. I said, tell you what, you get pizza here, buy from this guy. You can't go to the club with me. They go, oh, okay. So we went to the other pizza place. And I said, from now on, anybody that buys pizza from this place cannot go to the club with me. About a week later, I see one of the trumpet players in the pizza place. And I just looked. I didn't say anything to him. And a couple of weeks later, we're going to go to the club again. And he wants to go. And I said, no, you can't go because you were in the pizza place. He said, but you know, my wife, she, I said, I don't care. You bought pizza from that guy. You cannot go with me. Well, we'll see about this. You know, we'll get a fair one on if you don't want to. I said, okay. I go back into the barracks on Friday. And there's a bunch of guys there I don't know. I said, what's going on? We came to see the fight. I said, a fight? Who's fighting? Some guy named Johnson about some nightclub. I said, well, that's me. I guess I better get into my fatigues. Well, Ralph, who was the trumpet player, never showed up. But the word was out that we were going to fight because of this nightclub. So now everybody wants to know what the nightclub is about. A couple of weeks later, I go back to the bar with some of the guys. And I ask for my bottle of bourbon. And the guy brings out a brand new bottle of bourbon, puts it on the counter. And I said, that's not my bottle. He says, well, it's got your name on it. I said, yeah, but I only had maybe three fingers left in my bottle, maybe four or five drinks the most. I said, that's a full bottle. He says, wait a minute. He looks at it and there's another piece of paper stuck to the back. And he leaves, puts a barb, he comes back, the owner comes down he says, I want to thank you. And I said, for what? He says, You have made my business so much better by the fight you got into. I said, I didn't get into a fight. I was supposed to, but I never did. He says, yeah, but now everybody wants to know what this place is about. We're not going to have jazz on Thursday, Friday and Saturday, and not just Friday and Saturday. And you can't buy a drink here anymore. Contrary to what we're
0: often led to believe, activism doesn't always come in the form of massive social uprisings or changes to political policy. Often it occurs when people are willing to take a stand for what is right, and in doing so are able to change the hearts and minds of other individuals who then become allies. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical. And a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity Podcast Listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. In fact, they've put together a special demystifying diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at Vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com pages diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan. STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. People have the power to bring about change, and that may look like marches of millions, or it may look like taking a private stand for what's right.
5: When I was coaching uh, Anna Marie, I was being paid. Well, I say I, the black coaches were being paid less than the white coaches. And we didn't know it because we don't see the paychecks of the other people, you know. It was in the paper. They put it in, see, when they do things, they believe that they are doing things right. I mean, when they put it in the paper, it was in the paper and they were saying how much the coaches were making at different schools. The black coaches were being paid less. I prayed on it and And I talked with the other coaches and I talked with the principal and I said, we need to do something about it. And no one came up with an idea of doing anything. And the Lord put it on my mind what to do. The president of the school board owned a furniture store. You know, so I went to his furniture store and I told him, I said, you know, so I pointed out some of the things that I'd like to buy out of his store so he can deliver to my family, to my house. You know the bunk bed for my children, and 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 when the window air condition and things like that. He so see so he said, "Well, okay, okay, great." He said, "Let's sit down and you know so we can write it up, and I can have it delivered to you. You when when you want me to deliver it to?" You? I said, "Well, so as soon as you get my pay straight." And he said, well, <laughs> "What? What do you mean?" So then I had to go bring the newspaper what I had and show it to him that. Well, we, I work at a triple-A school. That's the highest that you could go that you could go at the time. And the other coaches, the white coaches at a junior high school, getting paid more than the high school coach. I'm getting paid, you know. And so he said, "Well, you know." He said, "Well, you know." Some coach he said, "We we haven't evaluated your school in a while. We need to evaluate your school. The next paycheck. The next paycheck." I had my pay straight so he could deliver the furniture.
0: That was Anna Marie Jones's uncle, her father's brother, Noel George, a retired high school teacher and athletic coach who also taught in prisons to help with reform and re-education efforts. Noel and his wife have lived in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana, for most of their lives. They spoke about how segregation infiltrated every aspect of existence. Here is Sadie Lewis-George, a retired educator and the author of the book, Separate but Unequal, Black Education and Life During Jim Crow in Terrebonne Parish.
6: I taught in the segregated schools until we desegregated in uh, 1969. And during that time, we had to have what we call forward in harmony. That's where we were getting the uh, different ones to come together and see how this integration was going to work. But before then, they had fought desegregation left and right. I'm kind of (laughs) sorry that they desegregated because it didn't help some of our Black kids at all.
0: In her conversation with Anna Marie... Sadie made it clear that in saying that segregation didn't help Black children, she wasn't advocating for the enactment of racism that allocated less resources to Black schools and teachers. She was speaking about other problems that came with the end of segregation. And just a quick note at various points in the background of Sadie's interview, you'll hear her daughter Melody ask her questions or offer reflections.
6: As a teacher, I said integration didn't work because we nurtured, we nurtured the black kids. The black teachers nurtured the black kids because we knew that they were going into this world and they needed certain things. But when integration came about, they didn't get that same nurturing. So this this is what I'm saying. They missed. They got a lot of things, but some of them didn't get the right things because we had dropouts and, you know, later on, you know. Um, Would it be fair to say that the reason why they were nurtured is because uh, they knew they were going to be met with disadvantages as far as unfairness and stuff like that? Well, we nurtured them because we knew what they were going to encounter when they got into this, you know. not that they were lacking No. And look. You had some smart, smart, smart black kids that, that never were able to to show. I remember this boy when we were growing up, and he was in high school. He used to make a telescope where we could look at the you know stars and stuff. You know, they were they were good. They were good, but they were not able to because we had nothing. You didn't have when the same when they, the same equipment or anything. Oh, yes. And the books, when they gave us the the neighbor base, they gave us hand-me-down books. We had to, (laughs) we had to little bugs, you know, like when a book is old and, you know, you get these little yellow things and we had to (laughs) hit the little bugs in order to try to read. It was just throwaway books, but they gave them to us.
0: When it comes to serving Black students, the American education system remains abysmal. I'll share more about that next week. But here's what it was like for Sadie as a college student attending Dillard University, a historically Black university in New Orleans, Louisiana, as she tried to get books from the public library.
6: When I was at Dillard, and I had to do, I think it was a philosophy or something, uh, one of my courses, I had to do some research during the Christmas holidays. And I went to the public library, and they asked me what I was doing there. I said, I'm looking for some books on philosophy. And she said, you can't get any books here. You have to go down to the um, the black, the colored library. I'm going say it like it is. You got to go down to the colored library. And... I said, I've been there. She said, well, she's going to have to order you some books. Now, how in the devil I'm going to know what books I I need by ordering the books? I don't even know. I go in the library and, and look to see what kind of books I need. So I was getting ready to start a ruckus there. My auntie was with me. She was living doing it. And she said, come on. I said, no, no, no. My dad and them pay taxes just like everybody else. And she said, come on. They were getting ready to call a policeman on me.
0: Since the beginning of the American education system, Black students have been systematically and systemically denied the right to equal and equitable education. And yet there has also been tremendous learning, retention, and sharing
6: of resources. Because we had great teachers, devoted teachers, who taught us They taught us the English. They taught us the foreign language. They taught us the math. They taught us the science. They taught us what we needed.
0: It's this sense of transmitting information as well as expression that has inspired and empowered so many Black Americans to love who they are and the people whose sacrificial love has enabled them to surpass what was possible for their ancestors.
7: Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylis is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylis' book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning.
0: Baba Doc described growing up in a largely segregated neighborhood and being inspired by his early exposure to Black music, celebration, beauty, and culture.
3: Well, my mother said that when she was carrying me in the womb, that she always focused on the, the drummer in a jazz band. Um, I, I grew up in a jazz family. My parents and relatives, they all listened to like Duke Ellington and Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald, stuff like that. So what really got me, what really bit me, the drum bit me badly, and I'm still dealing with it now, but it bit me when I was about seven or eight. And in my neighborhood, there was a parade that came through my neighborhood every year. And it was spearheaded by an organization called the, uh, the Elks.
0: He was referring to the Improved Benevolent Protective Order of Elks of the World, an African-American fraternal order that formed after the original Elks refused to accept Black members.
3: And I believe the Elks were African-American servicemen who formed sort of like an organization after they got out of the war. So there were Elks in Philly and Chester, Pennsylvania, and I think Newark, New Jersey, and even New York. And so every year all of these different elk homes would get together and have a big parade. And so on my street, we would sit on the porch and wait for the parade. And the parade would come from maybe three or four blocks up the street. And I could hear very faintly in the distance, boom, boom,
6: boom, I barely hear that
3: but it's getting closer. Boom. It's louder. It's getting louder. And, and people are excited, you know, and the women are looking, everybody's looking up the street cause it's coming. And now it's a block away and you can hear, it, you know, the drummers drumming. And now it's coming down my block and I can feel it. Boom. In my stomach. And, uh, People are on the porch waving, and it, the excitement is in the air. Cause these, you know, the big tall guys stepping with the baton, and servicemen are, are walking in step, you know, and, and drumming bugle corps. And, oh man! And the and the queen of the city is in the car, you know, the convertible, and and it passes right by my my house, and now it's just like. And then it's, it's going away and it's getting softer and softer until it fades into the distance. That's how I got started. I got bitten by that drum. Because I didn't choose it. It chose me. Yeah.
6: Oh, I love that. <laughs> you said the
0: queen of the city. Who was that?
3: I don't know. I just called her the queen because, you know, there was always maybe three or four convertibles that had some women sitting on the back waving. I don't even know who those folks were. They might have been one of the Elks' wives or something, you know. But it was always a very nice looking lady. And she was waving and sitting on the back of the of the convertible. So I just called her the queen, you know, because
7: <laughs>
3: she had to be a queen to be riding in the parade like that.
0: <laughs> I asked Baba Doc how important it was for him to see those Black Elks and beautiful Black queens and to be exposed to music early in his life.
3: I mean, the excitement of the parade and seeing people who looked like me in the parade. I, I mean, like, at that time... No white folks was cruising down my neighborhood in a parade. So I just didn't have any real connection with white folks back then. And so the influence of these folks in my life sort of like shaped and molded me to prepare for the world.
0: Coming out of segregation, whether it was legally or socially enforced, and certainly coming out of slavery... Black Americans didn't often see themselves represented in ways that amplified their power and potential. Yes, they may have heard oral histories of their ancestral legacies or maintained certain traditions, music, and culture, but during the 400 years of slavery, they'd suffered shattering experiences, such as watching those they loved be sold away, raped, or beaten. And then, during the more than 100 years of enforced segregation, they were devalued, degraded, or subjected to being barred from certain spaces. So the ability for those without much in the way of external examples or financial resources to find the strength not only to survive but to thrive is remarkable. And it doesn't come from nowhere. A lot of it comes from the support of community and loved ones. Don Wyatt told me that his mother wanted more for him than had been possible for her.
2: She was always an advocate of not giving up. And basically, the idea that whatever you want to pursue is fine as long as you're very good at it.
0: Where do you think she got that from?
2: Probably a life of Expectations. My mom was uh, you know, she's um she was uh she was a wellspring for me. You know, it was uh it was sort of a weighty set of expectations, but I think she realized a lot of her aspirations through me. So you know it's important that I not let her down.
0: She was legally prohibited from certain pursuits, right? I mean Mm
2: -hmm. my mom's been gone. 35 years now. So at any rate, I guess uh, that's a testament to the strength of her, her legacy for me.
0: What was her name? Sarah. Racism and everything that has stemmed from and continues to stem from it requires dehumanization and depersonalization. And it's easier to dehumanize someone if you're never exposed to their inner world and you don't actually interact with them. Walter told Zach and me that through his involvement with Fellowship House early on in life, he came to understand that all people are multidimensional and to establish connections with people of all different races.
4: Fellowship House was an interracial organization that believed that everybody could get along together. It was founded by Elaine Brown, who was Fellowship House choir's director at the time. But that organization did a lot of things to try to get people to get along, including things like, I think I read that you live in Mount Airy. I do, yes, yes. And and Mount Airy is probably one of the most integrated communities in the country. And part of that is because of Fellowship House, because the real estate agents used to do what they called blockbusting. They would go into a neighborhood and sell a house to a black person and then go and tell all the neighbors There's a black people moving into your neighborhood. It's time for you to to sell and get out. They would buy the house cheap and then sell it to black people for a lot more. And that's how they were making money. Well, one of the things that Fellowship House would do was take an integrated group and visit all the people in that block, including the people who had bought the house and say, these are nice people. And this is what the real estate is trying to do. Don't fall for it. You know, stay here. And at some point, maybe you want to sell your house. But if you do, you're going to get the profit from it, not this real estate agent that's trying to, to make things bad. In our conversation
0: with Walter, Zach asked a powerful question, and I think we were both surprised by his uncle's answer.
7: How did some of the major moments that happened, and maybe looking specifically towards the civil rights movement, actually impact you in your day-to-day or how did you respond to it? Any of Martin Luther King's speeches and you know the walk across Pettus Bridge and anything in that time frame that shaped America and how black people are treated in this country? How did that impact you in the moment living through those experiences?
4: You know, I went through stress when Martin Luther King died and and also when Kennedy died, when I came home my wife and and kids were all crying in the living room the day that Kennedy died. And I turned off the TV set, took them all out to dinner. They were all sitting there crying. Nobody had fixed dinner or anything. But there are times now that I just won't watch things. Some of the nonsense that I went through off post in the army, where you just don't want to deal with some of the nonsense. What
0: about like George,
4: George Floyd this summer? You know, one of the things that I can't, you know, I, I can get mad with individuals, and I've seen enough that some of it, like is these major things, they're little things that'll make more of an impact on me than anybody else.
0: It's the individual interactions that most impact us. Next week, you'll hear from a number of Black individuals, including some of those on this episode, about how individual interactions and cultural influences have both caused them pain and supported them in finding purpose. One of those you'll hear from is Kwaisi Asar, author of No Sir, How to Break the Chains that Bind Your Spirit. Kwaisi is an expert in workplace spirituality and other topics related to human dynamics and organizations. He specializes in empowering individuals to transcend undesirable, dysfunctional, and harmful conditioning by cultivating spiritual competencies that are designed to increase mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. And he'll share about how he's moved through his own childhood traumas and ancestral pain to find spiritual sustenance and strength. But I think it's important to let him share some of his experiences here because they tie directly to the ancestral legacy of subjugation and efforts to move beyond pain into an unshakable sense of self. For Kwaisi, part of establishing his authentic identity has meant moving from his given name into a name that more accurately represents who he is. What has the process been of moving into your current name? How have you personally navigated the movement to call yourself something else?
8: Well, you know, this started back when I was probably around 12 years old. And it resulted from a trip that my great grandfather took me on to North Carolina, where he took me where he was a, he grew up as a child. And we drove up and Gatling was on the mailbox. and I'm excited, right? I'm young and I'm like, wow, this is history. I'm right here in the moment. So we're sitting outside the house and this white lady comes out and she I guess she didn't see us or whatever. She went to the mailbox. She got the mail out of the mailbox and went back in the house and I'm sitting there a little puzzled. Like, if this is like where your father, this is where you grew up and there's your name is on the mailbox. Why is this white lady coming out of the house and getting the mail? And so he began to tell me the story about how his father's father was a sharecropper and how he ran away from, that place when he was a young child came up north to find a better life and it hit me that my name my identity was of this white family like that's where my name that's where my identity derived from and i cried all the way back to ohio like it was it crushed me in terms of my my self esteem as a child but came back home and I said, I'm not going to have this name anymore. I went into a book and I found a name and I told everybody to start calling me this name. Kenya Takuma. I remember the name, Kenya Takuma, And it had meaning. I won't get into it, but everybody laughed at me. I became the focus of a, of comedy routines throughout my family. It's like they did a number on me, right? Because and then my grandmother, she, she kind of finally told me, she said, you know what, it's probably not a good idea that you continue pushing this because if you have people call you this, you're not going to be treated well throughout your life. And I was angry, but I let it go. And I didn't get it until later on in life that I I really understood the the wisdom of her counsel at that time. But with the, the incident with George Floyd, something broke within me. You know, I've been living my life apologetically all my life. And I decided that I was no longer going to do that. And I went deep within, and I searched myself for my soul's identity. And it came to me, Kwaise Asar.
0: For Don Wyatt, the movement out of his past has involved not a change in name, but a change in location. Here's how he described growing up in Alton with the two lingering legacies of the Underground Railroad and James Earl Ray.
2: It was very fraught, and you felt continually like you were walking a kind of tightrope, and it was a very kind of charged environment. But like any environment that people live in, it's what you know. You learn to adapt, and you, you learn to, to live with it. People who live in areas that are rife with conflict, they naturally adapt for survival purposes, and occasionally you can even thrive in such an environment. So it's an interesting kind of legacy. It was one of those upbringings where from a sort of tension-riddled north, I could get the horizon and see this very fraught antagonistic South.
0: And here's how he spoke about moving beyond that antagonism, beyond the South-North dichotomy, beyond a life that for some others would have created limitations, and moving into his visions for himself and the visions his mother, Sarah, had for who he could become, that she couldn't become herself because of the restrictions racism imposed on her.
2: I made a uh, decision I think early on in life that I wasn't going to let my setting control my destiny. And consequently, you know, I was pretty committed to going where my inclinations led me in terms of ambitions.
0: For Black Americans who came up in the shadow of segregation, driven by their own ambition, who have thrived in many ways— the experience can be, to borrow a word choice that Don used in our interview, fraught. Whether or not you overcome obstacles doesn't exempt you of the pain of encountering them. Have you experienced moments of hate being directed at you in your, in your own life?
2: I, I've seen outright hatred. <laughs> I don't know how deep I want to go into this. Yeah. I think being the intellectual that I am, I guess, I've more often than not seen hatred masked. In other words, kind of disguised. And I think what I have reacted more to is just sort of this expectation of no, how should I how should I say it? The prejudice of low expectations. And the idea that you're not capable of performing at a level consonant with, say, a white person. And to me, that is a more troubling and angering sort of... It's always a more frustrating encounter, largely because when you face outright hatred, in my experience you're dealing with someone who is in in many ways sort of a captive of their own reduced expectations and almost certainly someone that you don't know, a kind of anonymity. But I think I'm much more affected by this idea of not being as capable as the next person. Well, in that,
0: I think one of the really startling and painful Parts about that is that it can often come from people who are claiming to be
2: allies. I think you put your finger on it. It's almost like there's a kind of duplicity in that moment. So I developed a lot of strategies for confronting them. And I try to do it in a way that is enlightening, even for the person who is the perpetrator.
0: I asked Don about those strategies.
2: I try to be met in my my reactions, try to not respond flippantly or even immediately sometimes to things. And you also develop a kind of sense of proportionality, I guess, just because Someone has reduced expectations for you does not necessarily mean it's malicious. It just means that that's the way they've been socialized. So you try to broaden their social vista.
0: The broadening of social vistas is something that segregation, whether enacted by law or by actions and attitudes, actively works to circumvent. Here is Bodine Sanders, author of Race Against, Against Race, My Journey of Diversity and Inclusion Through Sports, and a former collegiate football player, first at Cheney University, the oldest historically black college or university in America, then at Villanova University, where he played on a majority white team at a majority white institution, Bodine writes and speaks about diversity and inclusion in sports and the positive impact that multiculturalism has had on his personal and professional relationships.
9: My background, growing up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, community, attending a predominantly Black junior high school and high school, and then leaving that environment to the oldest HBCU in the country, founded in 1837, Cheney University, there was no reason for me to learn a new environment because I grew up in that environment. But then having the opportunity to transfer to Villanova (laughs) where We, as alumni of Villanova, like to tease within the family that we have a nickname called Vanilla Nova, okay? So we don't like people outside of our family teasing us. We only do it within the family. So if we hear somebody outside our family say that, we tend to push back. So having that visual, someone growing up in an all-Black environment his entire life age 18, 19 years old, and then all of a sudden thrust into a new, affluent, Catholic, Irish-Italian, Augustinian environment, that's the pivotal point where I begin to grow more.
0: You'll hear more from Bodine in future episodes but it's important to share that being exposed to difference is one of the ways we come to first see, then embrace the humanity and others, which may mean dismantling former beliefs and biases.
9: Me being from the former Southern Confederate South, or as in my book, I write the Jim Coward, not Jim Crow, Jim Coward South. I grew up in a predominantly black community. To me, when I say predominantly black community, I mean 99.9% black community. So there was no diversity in my community, meaning in my neighborhood. And the little 0.01% of diversity were two white families that were all retired folks And the growing up in the South hearing the stories from the elders, learning our history. And a lot of the stories you hear are people's personal experiences. But if someone's describing a situation regarding race, they've made the mistakes of saying white people. And we all know now that all white people are not the same, just like all black people aren't the same. But as a kid growing up, hearing those stories, not just from elders, but people in the neighborhood, other parents, other families, other kids. So if you grow up in an environment where it's constantly blame the white guy or the white man, you know, the man. And we know the man could also parallel mean the government, but blame the man. So when you grow up as a kid having that kind of influence on kids, because kids we know listen. And so growing up in that environment, and hearing all those stories, if you don't have someone teaching you the right from wrong, you have to then make some decisions based on your experiences and as you grow. So I was able to learn, like, I didn't know, I mean, (laughs) this may sound funny, but I didn't know the difference between an Italian and an Irish and a German and a Jewish person. I grew up in an environment where you're black and they're white, that's it. So when you grow up with that limited experience and understanding of differences between people, that's where you are deficient in the knowledge and and information that you will have, which can hurt your decision-making.
0: The more segregated our society, the less we're able to expand our perspectives and to learn from and evolve with one another. Society and the individuals that comprise it suffer from separation and flourish with diversity. Also, the more we attempt to distance ourselves from the past by refusing to look at it, the more we fail to learn from it, which then leads to perpetuating cycles of inequity and pain.
7: Hi, listeners. Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, We'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes.
0: Throughout the course of our interview, I noticed Channing used the words we and us to refer to enslaved people. And I asked him about his reasons for that.
1: The main reason is that I'm a part of, that I'm a part of the community, but also I think it's important for people who aren't members of the community to, to have a sense. The example I would like to give, and I'm not sure if I should, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I'll put it this way. I'm gonna have, I've had a couple of experiences writing various articles about the black queer community or the black community, and I tried to use we, and my editors would say, What are you doing? That's so jarring to say that. And I said, you know, why is it jarring? This is how I want people to experience reading. I wanted people to experience reading about these events as if they were there, as if they were in the midst of it. Even if they're not part of our community, they can they can imagine being part of the community. I think saying something like black people were put on stinking slave ships for months in the journey to America is one thing, but to say we were put on stinking slave ships in the journey to America feels totally different. So I just want, I want that sense of intimacy to come across sometimes. I think it's important for us to really reevaluate this commitment to neutrality and objectivity. I would like to instill in my students an understanding of You're not just reporting on a story to a faceless, nameless audience or readership. They're real people. They need the information. And not getting it has a material effect on their lives. Whatever community you're in, it matters.
0: Authentic stories matter. Stories of struggle and survival, of pain and of joy.
1: What I want to say is that, yes, our lives, the lives of people in our community have been hard and are still hard. Personally, I want to focus on how we have been successful in finding uh, and creating joy for ourselves in order to survive that difficulty. To me, that's our genius and our contribution to the world, right? Because everybody, oh my God, what an amazing outfit. What an amazing dance, you know, she just did. What, a, what, what an amazing fashion show they put together. You know, people love us for our creativity, right? <laughs> and But they don't know that it comes from all that pain. It also is how we survive, right? It's by finding joy through our creativity and, and building community through that joy and creativity.
0: So I think I want to
1: focus on that piece.
0: I want to focus on that too, present and past. For the next two weeks, we'll be looking at diverse stories of Black individuals, hearing from those who have a lot to share about their struggles and successes. In the meantime, I hope you'll spend some time reflecting on the relationship between the present and the past. In speaking about the dangers of learning a disembodied, sanitized version of history, Channing told me that that version gives the following impression.
1: No. Nothing you do matters, and bad things that happen happen for no reason because there's not a prior set of circumstances that led to it.
2: I think bad things happen. I don't know. Just... <laughs>
1: <laughs> and some things, sometimes bad things happen for no reason, but most things that happen are happening because of previous choices and previous systems that were put into place.
0: So let's consider systems and choices that were put in place before us as well as those that remain in place today, and think about what we can do through our own individual actions and as a social collective to bring about a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive world. It could-
4: What can
0: we do to keep the pain? Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. If you haven't already, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, and review. And if you'd like to ask us a question, which we'll try to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, please call 844-888-8148 and leave your question or comment, or visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can get in touch, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. A sincere thank you to those who so graciously lent their voices to this episode. Channing Gerard-Joseph, Don Wyatt, Baba Doc, Sadie Lewis-George, Noel George, Kwaisi Asar, and Bo Dean Sanders. And thank you to our episode sponsors, Vita Supreme and Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lee Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Zach James, co collaborator and marketing manager, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor. Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studios, who provided additional audio recording, Stuart Crantz, production and development assistant, and Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. This episode includes reporting by Anna Marie Jones. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, Pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Join us next week. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.